The Torah portion here is Bahar. It's Leviticus 25. It starts off talking about the Shemitah, which is the year that the land enjoys a Sabbath. And then you have Yovel, which is in English Jubilee, which is seven Shemitah years, so seven times seven plus one. And by the way, what else are we going through that's seven times seven plus one? Counting the Omer. So as we count in the Omer, you have that same pattern, seven times seven plus one. What I want to do is go down to verse 13 in, in Leviticus 25. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor to buy from another, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according and so forth. When it says each man shall return to his property, the Hebrew is actually the land will regain its people. One of the things that you may very well be aware of is that when God does covenants, one of the things he says is, I call heaven and earth as witness against you. And of course, everything will be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the idea that the earth is a partner in the covenant is consistent with the biblical text. Instead of the land belonging to the people, the people belong to the land. What does God say when he's sending Israel into the land for the first time? What is he saying about what's going to happen if they don't follow his Torah? If you do not follow the Torah or his covenant and you violate his covenant, the land is going to vomit you out. So this idea of the land being an active participant in the covenants between God and humanity just flows throughout the entire Torah. The second thing we want to talk about here is responsibilities of the community to Israelites who have fallen on hard times. We've talked about biblical slavery before. There's two kinds of biblical slavery. Kind number one is involving Israelites, and kind number two is involving Gentiles. I think a couple, three weeks ago, I went through the business of how the Bible is set up to abolish slavery. But when a Hebrew sells himself into slavery, either because he can't support himself or because he has committed some crime and the judges have sold him into slavery to pay for the crime. Slavery, in biblical terms, is very much something you do as opposed to something you are. The rest of the world regards slaves as something you are. You are a slave, and you will be a slave until the day you die, and your children after you will be slaves, that's what you are. In biblical terms, slavery is something you do for a time period. And at the end of that time period, you come out from slavery, and the one who held you is to set you up so that you have enough wherewithal to earn a living and so forth and move off on your own. But the idea is that the community itself is responsible for you even when you are a slave. So if a Hebrew sells himself to a Gentile because the Gentile is the only one in the neighborhood who's got enough to buy him, then the Hebrews around him have an obligation at some point to redeem him. And if he's living in the land, even Gentiles owning Hebrew slaves at least according to Torah, in the land or to give them up at Yovel and Shemetah. Furthermore, 
it says you will treat your poor brother so that he can be part of the community, not drive him out and not enslave him. So the idea is that your behavior towards your fellow Hebrews is so that they can be part of the community. Now, now as part of that, they may have to go into slavery for a period of time, but they expect to come out. So if one of them, for example, becomes poor, you can't lend him money at interest. In fact, other places in Torah, you're commanded to lend him money. Even if you know that we're coming up against the year of release, and there's no way that that rascal is going to be able to pay you back, you are not allowed to say, well... Six months from now, we're going into the year of release, so if I give this guy any money, I know that the debt's going to be forgiven and I'll never get it back. So I won't lend to it. Scripture says don't do that. You will not think that way. Similarly, if he's starving and is poor, you will not sell him food at a profit. Tom, who is an upstanding man and got lots of money, if he comes and wants to buy produce from me, I can make a profit off of Tom because he's got plenty of money. But if somebody who comes and wants to buy produce from me and the guy is poor, I have to sell it to him at cost. And again, understand that that's a difference in the status of the purchaser. It is not a blanket prohibition against making a profit. And Yovel only shows up once every 50 years. So if your neighbor becomes poor and has to sell his land, the community especially if he sells it to a Gentile, is obligated to come alongside him and help him redeem the land. So the idea of his near kinsman going the extra mile to make sure that the land that owns this guy, and notice how I said that, will get him back. The point I'm making is God goes to great lengths here to establish that it is the responsibility of the community to make sure that the poor members of the community can live among it and that their land is not forever lost to them or they are not forever lost to their land. So there's redemption for land. There's redemption for a a person who has sold himself into servitude. And then there are accommodations that you make so that the poor can live among you. That's thing one. Thing two, Haftor today. Now let's go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32.6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. You need to understand the historical context here. They have got a Babylonian army that's sort of idling around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Judah is about to go into captivity to Babylon. So if you are in the real estate business, you really don't want to be buying and selling from Jews. You want to be buying and selling from Babylonians because they're going to be the new owners. So for this guy to come and say, hey, I've got this piece of land in occupied Babylonian territory. You're the near kinsman. I want you to redeem it. And you sort of say, really? And what are you going to do about all those hairy Babylonians that are on my piece of property? I mean, I got to get them off? Get the title clear before you come to me. Get rid of the Babylonians. And, of course, Jeremiah does buy the land. And the whole point of that is it becomes a physical exercise in prophecy. Because God is saying by this act of prophecy that they're acting out, 
that the time will come when Israelites again will buy and sell land. And the land will have its people back. So the idea that you're pouring money down a rat hole, well, yeah, from Jeremiah's perspective he is because he's not going to get that money back because it's going to be 70 years before people start returning to the land. Jeremiah will have died by then. So Jeremiah is not getting anything out of his investment except the deed. Jeremiah is redeeming that piece of land. And for that, he is going to get a deed. So I'm now down to verse 9. So I bought the field of Anathoth from Hanamiel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Mahasiah, in the presence of Hanamiel, my cousins, in the presence of witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and the presence of all the Jans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, plural, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in the land. So what he's doing is a physical act of prophecy. The prophecy is Israel's going to come back, people are going to buy and sell land, and you are the evidence or the earnest that that's going to happen. I want you to see one thing, though. Notice that there are two copies of the deed. There is a sealed copy and there is an open copy. Both of them are identical, but one is sealed and one's open. What you do is you do the equivalent of you take the sealed copy and you put it in the county seat. And that's where it stays until the land is sold again. You keep the open copy in your desk. So if you need to go with your neighbor and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sycamore tree is mine, not yours. You take the open copy of the deed and you and your neighbor stand there and you look, you know, there's the stream and there's the hill and you're right, that's your sycamore tree. Nope, you're wrong. So it's a working copy. The open copy is a working copy. The sealed copy is the one of record because if you've got the open copy, you could be making marks all over your copy of the deed and so forth. And if your copy of the deed gets too far out of whack from what your neighbor thinks your copy of the deed should look like, the two of you can then go to the county seat and you can open up the sealed one, which you don't have access to. So you can't change that one because it's sealed and it's stored in somebody else's hand. That naturally, of course, takes you to Revelation. So what we have in Revelation is we have a sealed document. The document has seven seals on it, and as each seal is broken, something happens on earth. What I will suggest to you is that that sealed document, it's the Torah. And what I will suggest is the ones that you have in your hands all around you are the open copies. You have an open copy that's down here with us, which is a working copy that we work off of. And yes, people have tried to change it and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of a working copy and a sealed copy, and there's a dispute over the land. We're in dispute. So now what's happened is Yeshua, who is our kinsman, we have a dispute over 
the ownership in the terms of the deed. So what he's doing as the kinsman is he is going back to the county courthouse, which is in heaven, and he is opening up the original copy, and he's saying, okay, this is in fact what the terms are. And I don't care what your revisionist texts say, this is the record copy. And oh, by the way, I am your kinsman, and I am qualified to redeem you who have sold yourselves into slavery. You have sold yourselves into slavery, you have sold your land. I am a qualified redeemer, and I now have a copy of the original deed. That's what's going on in this Torah portion. And this Torah portion sets all of that up. And so without this Torah portion, none of what happens in Revelation means anything. Because this is where the procedures and the rules are set up as to how that all is going to work. A couple other things as, as we're going on. Agriculture and the Shemitah and the Yovel. God says that you will not farm for one year and seven. So you go six years and then the land lays fallow. I mean, it, it, grapes will continue to produce and orchards will continue to produce, but you can't husband them in that year. In other words, you can't go out and prune them, you can't harvest your apples or your grapes, any of that kind of stuff. And what grows of its own accord then becomes community property. Anybody can go out and walk through your orchards and pick your apples during that year, and that's fine. And on the Yovel Jubilee, it's two years. So you have the regular Shmeta year, which is the seventh year in a, in a seven-year cycle, and that's year 49. Then you have year 50, during which also you are not allowed to do agriculture. So now you have two years in a row where you're not allowed to do agriculture, whereas normally you have one year. One of the things that I find interesting is the Torah says that in the sixth year of each cycle, I will give you a bumper crop so that you will have everything stored up to take you through the year when you can't do agriculture and during the spring and summer of the next year before your crops are ready. One of the things to notice here is there's no faith involved. Either God provides you with a bumper crop or he doesn't. You know in advance whether or not you have enough to get through that next year. It is not a matter of God saying, you have faith in me, don't plow, don't do anything, I'll take care of you. No, you got the stuff in your barn. So, two things. First thing is if it's not a test of faith, what kind of a test is it? Greed. In other words, are you going to take more than God wants you to have? Which is, by the way, an excellent working definition of greed. Taking more than God wants you to have. If you then continue to farm in that seventh year, what you're saying is, I'm not satisfied with what God intended to give me. I want more than what he's intended to give me, which is a definition of greed. It's a land that's getting its rest. This is not a Sabbath for farmers. This is not a year of rest for people who are farmers or, or vintners or husbandmen. This is a year of rest for the land. So if your business is banking or 
selling groceries or any of those kinds of things, you, you keep working. This is not a year off for you. This is a year off for the land. And remember we started this thing off by saying it's the land that has the people. The land is an active part of everything. So the idea is it starts off with God taking a Sabbath, then people taking a Sabbath once a week, then slaves taking a Sabbath once every seven years, being let free, and then finally the land taking a Sabbath once every seven years, and at the end of 50 years, the land gets its people back. The people that God put on it go back to the land that he put them on. It's with respect to the land, it's not respect to farmers. Seven times seven plus one. Take a few minutes and talk about that. There's two obvious sequences of seven times seven plus one in scripture. We're in one of them now as we go through the Omer, and of course the other one is the seven Shemitah years plus one is your belt. The harvest of first fruits at Passover is barley. The harvest for first fruits at Shavuot is wheat. And furthermore, at Shavuot, the bread that you bring is leavened bread. It's the only time you bring leavened bread into the presence of Yehovah. All the rest of the time, it's matzah. One of the things that we do, and for those of you who have these little omer sheets that we pass out, which are not original with us, you'll notice that you read Psalms of Ascent. Psalms of Ascent are specifically psalms that are read as you're going up to Jerusalem. Barley is regarded as two things. For well-to-do people, barley is regarded as animal fodder. For poor people and slaves, barley is regarded as food. It's a less desirable grain, so it's, it's either fed to animals or it's all that a poor person can afford to buy. So the idea is we start at Passover when God takes us out of Egypt. And what were we in Egypt that God takes us out of? Slaves. So what we're doing is we are ascending over a period of 50 days to stand at Sinai. So we read Psalms of Ascent as we move from Egypt to Sinai. Furthermore, we go from animal or slave food, which is barley, to people chow, which is bread. So this whole process is one of ascent from the depths of degradation, slavery, whatever you want, animalistic existence, if you wish, and by a period of 50 days, we ascend to the point where we're now ready to stand in God's presence and receive the Torah or the Holy Spirit. The whole thing is, if you will, an acting out of prophecy. And that goes right back with the kinsman redeemer that we talked about earlier, who at some point is going to reclaim the earth for us, redeem it for us, and bring us to stand in the presence of God. It's all seamless, one story. Actually, where I do want to go, in Matthew 18 of today's reading, verses 7 through 21, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Well, what does that mean? Saying two things. The first thing it says is, woe to the world for temptation to sin. 
For it is necessary that temptations come. That's thing one. It's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. What's that mean? Temptations are necessary for the development of character. The rabbis say that anyone who is at peace has lost his way. If you are at a place where you can put your hands over your tummy and you can lean back and you can survey the whole world with a quiet smile, knowing that you are in the will of God, you have lost your way. Because the whole point is you will continue to get trials, you will continue to get temptation, you will continue to get difficulties because that's the only way that you grow. And if you have worked yourself into a position where none of those things is happening to you, you have worked yourself into a dead end. The flip side of that, though, is he's saying, hey, if you are tempting your neighbor, you are wrong. Because typically, if you're tempting your neighbor, what you're trying to do is get your neighbor to do something that you want him to do for you. So you're trying to exploit your neighbor in that sense. So, woe to the one who by temptation comes. In other words, if you're leading somebody astray, woe to you. But however, understand that part of living in this world is things are going to try and lead you astray. 